This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Furminger. My mission is to pull back the curtain on Vancouver's film and television industry and expose its beating heart, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom style, by getting deep and down and a little dirty with the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. Today, we welcome Karen Lamb to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. So I told Karen that I always start with these with a thesis statement. And so this is the first line. This is my, this is why you're here today. Okay. You ready? Okay. I love that I'm scaring you a little bit. It's it's unnerving. Okay. I love it. I love unnerving you. (laughs) I get why you do what you do. Okay. Here we go. Karen Lamb is a contradiction. Huh? I like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's my explanation. So on one hand, she is a fearless and trailblazing maker of films that terrify and horrify and haunt your, well, my nightmares. I'm talking films like Evangeline, a feature about a naive college student who is brutalized by a gang of thrill-seeking killers and is then revived by an ancient demon spirit that empowers her with a bloodlust for vengeance. And there's also the upcoming Curse, The Curse of Willow Song, which will bring the real-life horror show that's the Vancouver housing crisis into the horror genre. <laughs> she also served as a story editor on Van Helsing, a post-apocalyptic vampire series that doesn't have any spa- sparkly vampires in it. And she story edited and wrote on one of the weirdest and scariest and most fucked up series, you can swear on this podcast, BT Dub, out of the Vancouver screen scene, the vastly underrated and ahead of its time, Ghost Wars. So that's one Karen, terrifying maker of nightmares. And then there's the other Karen that only became evident to me when we connected on social media. This other Karen loves her cats, like loves her cat, Sophia and Mateo, to the point where she runs a social media account for them. She's also an avid sewer and knitter and really doesn't seem all that scary at all. (laughs) So earlier this year, Karen premiered her short film, Sandra O. Oh, inspiration at the 2019 Governor General's Performing Arts Awards Gala in Ottawa, where Sandra received the National Arts Center Award. Karen's film featured actors from traditionally marginalized communities, including previous podcast guest and powerhouse Mayumi Oshida, speaking about the influence that Sandra's work has had on their careers, and then inhabiting roles in live-action tableaus inspired by A Clockwork Orange, Carrie, Gone with the Wind, and Star Wars A New Hope. So I guess that's where, like, scary Karen met like a warm and fuzzy Karen. Anyway, so today I'm calling this episode Karen Lamb Inspiration. I want to talk about genre. I want to hear from both Karens, the one who terrifies and the one who loves kittens and yarn, and figure out what the world looks like from her incredibly unique vantage point. Karen Lamb. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thanks for having me. So, contradiction in terms. I mean, you seem to be that you, you walked in here and I gave you a hug and you're wearing a new sweater and um, I'm like, it's so soft. You're like, yeah, yeah, it's so soft. It's like I skinned a Muppet and I'm like, wow, <laughs> save that for the podcast. So like, do you consider yourself to be a contradictions in terms? Like how does a genre Karen fit with like 
kitten and yarn Karen? I think they were the same person. Like, I, I don't know why we have to think that I sleep in a coffin or that I drink blood. I mean, I, I, I am sort of carnivorous, but I think <laughs> that you're supposed to have lots of facets, right? Yeah. Because if you're actually going to be storytelling and, and working with actors and, and like all the different, um, you're creating character, you're creating story, I don't think it would be safe to just be in one specific zone. You, yeah. Yeah. So are, so are you either like, are you contesting my thesis statement? I am. <laughs> you know what? Because you also liked that Karen Lamb yeah, is a contradiction, I right? do like that. Um, it's interesting just because people know me from different like I guess if you're a knitter, you know me from Knit Group. If, mm -hmm. you, if you're a sewer, you know me from Instagram and you know my cats. Love your um, cats. If you are a horror filmmaker or a horror fan, then you know my films. And so I think they can all exist in a happy contradiction, but you know. Okay, how about this one? Karen Lamb contains multitudes. Oh, I like that too. Okay. It's funny because I don't actually want them all to mix. Like people keep uh, sending me things to knit that are scary, but I actually don't want to knit scary things. I want beautiful clothes. I don't yeah. want to actually look like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I don't actually want to knit a big Cthulhu like cap. You know what I mean? Like I, I think that's a bit, it's a bit But would like, you knit that for a cat? I might. Because that would what? be really adorable. My cats won't wear anything, but if anyone has a dog that <laughs> wants to have a little costume, I might I might think about yeah, it. So, yeah, my cats, we, we bought them a couple little um, caps recently. Uh, <laughs> they're supposed to be cat costumes. One was like a jellyfish head, and the other was supposed to make them look like a strawberry. And they look like they came from one of your oh films. God, they are awesome. so like cute and also incredibly terrifying. So, <laughs> Well, I am very happy that you're here. I'm sorry it took so long, but you have been on my like idea board for a very long time time uh maybe i was just scared to ask you really yeah maybe someone said that that but i'm I, I honestly i i think it's the sometimes if you know my films first then you think oh my god she might be this but yeah. then it turns out oh someone said you're off brand this uh, I, I was at a <laughs> i was at a, a reception quite a number of years ago and um i i saw this little little guy he said he was in marketing and he said you know the Saskas are on brand you are so off brand mm. and i thought huh, what does that mean exactly? Yeah. You know, and so that's what he said. He, he said, you pass for normal. And I thought, oh. <laughs> oh, no, I, I don't agree that you pass. Well, yeah, maybe you do. But like, I, I mean, you're non-threatening. And yet I remember seeing Evangeline and just not be, like being unable to sleep oh. for days after, oh, feeling very good. haunted by it, disturbed, and also scared of who end up being two of the nicest humans in the in the industry, uh, Richard Harmon and David Lewis, because of that film. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> Richard is the sweetest guy, and David, I just like killing over and over again. Yeah. Like it's, it's, I get jealous if I see him in other films and people have killed him in a really macabre sort of way. I'm like, damn it. Why yeah. Like, I, I was like, you got harpooned in this film? Like, why didn't I think of harpooning you? Yeah. So, he's like, great. And then his like sweet tattoo that he has with all of his like family <laughs> stuff. I'm like, I every time I see that in another project, I'm like, that's a murder thing. That's, <laughs> cause that's all the hands of his victims. <laughs> so, okay. I want to go back in time. Yes. I love me some time travel. Uh, I want to go back and I... I so you are we at in going into a TARDIS? Are we going into the DeLorean? Are we going into the H.G. Wells time machine? Are we going into the Bill and Ted f phone booth? Oh, Bill and Ted. All right. 100%. Okay. I, like Keanu. <laughs> team Keanu all the time. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. He, he's got to get into one of your films. Oh, my God, if I could. It's, it, River's Edge so inspired me. Yeah. So that, and, and then, of course, Bill and Ted. But, all right. So we're yeah. getting, we're getting in, into their phone booth. Yeah. And we're going, I think we're going to the prairies. Yes. Okay. And I, what, so... 
give me a year from your childhood that was like really where we could see it's like typical little kid Karen being her typical little kid self. I want to go meet that kid. Kid or teenager? Ooh. Because if it's if it's kid, then I'm sitting on... Um, we can do lots of visits, right? Okay. It's not like just so one trip. So one visit is probably me sitting on the front hall closet, um, like the, the carpet, and wishing that it would... I was trying to be a witch. It wasn't working. So I was casting and um, trying to get the, the carpet to levitate. It was not levitating. Yeah. So there was that fail carpet like flying carpet fail but I, I I tried on a number of things broomsticks you know nothing nothing really quite worked and yeah. so the early witchery was there yeah and so, yeah there was that uh probably later in the afternoon I would have been watching um like sort of kung fu samurai type movies with my dad and uh we or um Clint Eastwood Charles Bronson sort of revenge films I would have been too young for them but he really liked the company and so we would eat um pepperoni sticks and uh watch watch beheadings so that was that's like the perfect afternoon and also explains a lot (laughs) uh okay so that's that's one picture and it's what what can you tell me about like the like were your were your parents like creative people um did they work in the creative industries like what what kind of what kind of work did they do my dad was a prof in education my mom stayed at home so um she was a huge detective like she was always a reader my whole life was just stacks and stacks of her chinese books and they were always like the she loved agatha christie she loved edgar Allan poe she loved all of the suspense oh my god i'm totally watching this picture of you come together (laughs) wow and uh my dad was a consummate storyteller so he loved telling stories so every night um i always got fairy tales but he would always sort of warp them so it was like robinson crusoe and his boy friday but they were eaten by cannibals right so it was always and then they were eaten there was it was always a the cannibals (laughs) always came into it so a lot of um and were you scared like how did that make you you feel when you heard that story was there like a thrill there it was a thrill it was terrifying of course I would often just lie there and you know wait for the monsters to come from under my bed but on the other hand I loved the stories so it was the it was the push-pull and also I think it was like a way of like mother like sort of father-daughter bonding you know like it was something that we liked that um it's not that my mom didn't really do that because she was also a reader but like, a lot of people were dying in her books and stuff, exactly. and then she got to put it together and but, solve it. Uh, I think story time is really like sort of my dad and I sort of thing, and so that 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 was a big part of it. And yeah. So, yeah. Okay. And, so, yeah. teenager. Then you said that was our next stop. Oh, our next stop is a teenager. I am. Lis- I am now full heavy metal head. Um, listening to Metallica and Slayer and, you know, like, the, like all my friends were into Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. And so we wow. were basically uh, driving around uh, up and down one stretch of, of um, Brandon, going to 7-Eleven and uh, probably dosing our Slurpees with something bored out of our skulls and uh, looking for things to do while listening to metal and hopefully renting horror films when we were able to. So that was... Yeah. Well, you know what I love? I, I had heard a little bit about that Karen, uh, when uh, you introduced Near Dark uh, last year at the Her Stories Women Calls the Shots, which it's a feminist film series that I host at uh, Vif Fan City Theater. And when they have all these like awesome, badass, you know, uh, f- 
female filmmakers or female identifying filmmakers come in and introduce a film by another, you know, a women director that they really like admire that was formative. And so um, I I think Karen shows like probably the most fun film in that series, which was Catherine Bigelow's uh, Near Dark, which like pretty much you described in your 7-Eleven story, except with yeah. vampires yeah yeah <laughs> I, I think th- that's why I so related to that to that film because we were always looking for a way out we just knew we weren't going to stay in Brandon but how we were going to get out was a whole other a whole other matter most of us were thinking well at university I'll escape you know what I mean it was yeah. always that sort of stuff so that's probably where I also started learning to sew and I, I was sewing at that point because we had two main malls there was Pennington's and Ricky's and that and unless you wanted to dress like that yeah that's all you were stuck with so when I wasn't driving around like again listening to metal way too loud arguing about horror films I was making clothes so that was pretty well that's why it all comes together wow that's the, Thank you, so Brandon. you've always like this is this isn't an affectation. This is who you are containing multitudes. Right. Like I fucking love that. <laughs> this is why I love origin stories, too. But so back in in Brandon, we're, we're saying to our international listeners, we're talking Brandon, Manitoba. This is uh, a part of Canada that um, is like a vast, like flat field pretty much like it's north of Minot we used to think it was a big deal to go to Minot to go shopping I don't even know what that is Minot North Dakota so that so that was our nearest town and uh, some like our big trips would be going to Minot to um, good god like we were pretty well Fargo if you look at it that way and so we would sometimes drive like I remember a big class trip we had was driving down down to Minneapolis that was such a big town for us wow bright lights big city Minneapolis. Yeah, that was, that was it. So, How do you think growing up on the prairies then informed the kind of stories that you tell now? Well, you've seen um, Winnipeg Film Group, so you know what happens with long, long, boring winters where you have nothing to do except for to entertain each other, right? Yeah. So I think that it meant that we were always watching films, we were always looking for things to do, and we were like there wasn't um, there wasn't a ski slope to to compete with our attention. We didn't have clubs really. There was yeah. like a couple of bars that you could go. To too. So I think we were all like we were all such movie bubs, you know, like we were constantly and because there's only one or two theater, I think two theaters and uh, the university theater that played kind of all the art house stuff. Yeah. We really didn't have anything apart from the blockbuster. And, you know, like that was sort of our big trip, which was get wasted, go to the blockbuster, rent horror films. Go yeah. Home. So that to was it. our younger listeners, a blockbuster is a video store, uh, a concept that really doesn't exist anymore. It's like stepping into Netflix pretty much. Yeah. And then you, I mean, for me, I remember going and like, it, it was like a Friday night thing. And um, I liked, we would go to Jumbo Video because they had free bags of popcorn that so you could get your little bag of popcorn and walk around and then like, you know, and you'd walk out with like three movies or something. And then that would be, <laughs> the weekend and And there'd be lots of arguments as to what we were going to play first because you always got a bunch of movies oh yeah but everyone knew I had slight narcolepsy so it usually meant that I would be able to be awake for the first movie second movie I'll see the beginning sort of like I remember seeing Awakenings um, which isn't a horror film obviously but when I fell asleep everyone had woken up so as far as I'm concerned it's a really happy movie. Everyone woke up. Yeah. Right? And so I, I have, yeah. Selective narcolepsy. Exactly. I And it's weird because I've also fallen asleep in Scarface at the exact same time every single time. Huh. Right after the chainsaw scene, I fall asleep. Then I wake up and he's got cocaine all over his desk, right? And there's a middle bit, I'm sure, that's there. Yeah. But there's something in that, in that 
I'm not sure in the rhythm of that movie that yeah. I am out cold. And then I wake up and then it's just, you know. It's like there's the director's cut and then there's the Karen Lamb cut. <laughs> That's actually how you want to you want to experience it. Um, but so so you're you're growing up on the prairies and you're going to 7-Eleven and you're going to the movies and whatever. What did you want to be when you grow up? Fashion designer. Yeah. Yeah. I really thought that that was where I was going to, like, well, I, I I was a classically trained musician. So I spent 16 years Royal Conservatory piano. I played French horn. I marched in French with my French horn. Did you get your ARCT? I did not, actually. So yeah. uh, I guess I was a little short of that. But Me I, too. I got to grade 10. And I'm like, I'm good now. Yeah, that was <laughs> it. I, I got to grade 10 in, um, but then I realized they really wanted me to practice, like, a lot. I know, it got me too. Yeah. So, and that's also around the same time that I discovered the sewing machine. So I was mm. really hardcore sewing at that point. And uh, I got into Ryerson, um, the design program, after my first degree. So I actually went to Ryerson Fashion Design for wow. a year before dropping out and going to law school. It was a legally blonde moment. Wow. I, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, I kind of knew that was coming. Uh, <laughs> but still, it's still jarring when you say it. And then it was fashion, and then I went to law school, which you didn't mention anything about law or wanting to be a lawyer or anything. So uh, so what 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 inspired that change? Kate? Panic, really. Like, I mean, honestly, um, I was in, in fashion school. I realized I did not like the industry. As much as I loved making clothes, I didn't like how... I think we were at that point already moving towards fast fashion, and mm. I really didn't like the way that it moved. Uh, Canadian, so you're more into like couture and yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I was so inspired by sort of like the like you know I used to look at Zandra Rhodes. I would look at all the the ready to wear and you know like New York and London and Milan. And when you work in Canadian fashion, at least at that point, it was really sportswear. So yeah. they were either you were either going to go and work for Le Chateau yeah. and like kind of rip off as many designs as you could, which is now our equivalent of H and M, Zara, you know that sort of stuff, where you're just ripping from the runways, yeah. or you're going to be doing like you know the uh, our now it's better. Like when you think of Lululemon, like you know they're kind of they're they're a much better company but for us back then it was just basically you can design parkas you know like for maybe if you're lucky for the hudson's bay and i just thought oh that's a dreadful dreadful career yeah. so i panicked and because i had an english lit degree which is so useful um wrote, same girl same yeah. so i mean i i love our degree because you know i think about all this like it's it's about pure learning it's not about oh like, i got to read books for four years exactly. and i worked for the paper and then i i did a year abroad but it was like it was about just like filling my head with stories but it's not vocational you yeah know what i mean like absolutely not people are like, like what are you gonna do with it i'm like uh, i'll think about that later <laughs> they're gonna be a teacher right I'm you like, know what uh, no. i think it taught us to think like yeah. i think that it because the someone said that I, I think I was watching on a talk show. Whatever you take as your major is what you're going to see the world through that lens. And so yeah. the world, the the lens that I see the world as is through character and through story. Yeah. So I think that that still works really well. But I did. Yeah, panic. I guess I kind of do that. Like I, I I seek out people's stories and I elevate elevate them and amplify. And I still write More and characters, stuff. Yeah, right? you're, you're treating us like characters. And, Absolutely, and you are. <laughs> yes, you are. And you just told a wonderful yarn about me. So. <laughs> Um, we haven't talked about really the fact that, I mean, about your Asian-ness and about the fact that, like, you grew up on the prairies, you know, um, with Asian parents. And uh, I just, and I'm, I'm bringing it up because I think it's important to, if the, if, it, to see how 
because we do talk about that a lot on this podcast as well, and the impact that our parents' experiences have on our own journeys. You know, so your your parents then, like, what is it that they had wanted you to do, and and were you battling at all with, you know, like I talk about my my this my dad gave me this painting, so I just I gesture to it. It's the Buddha <laughs> painting by Rekeshiv Dasani. But you know, dealing with his own expectations about what he wanted me to do and the kind of the conflict there. Did you have any of that? Did they want you to be a lawyer? I think they always knew I was a bit weird and quite creative because I spent, like, for all of the time that, it took me no time to get through my schooling. And I would spend hours, like, with my oil paintings or sewing or doing whatever it is. You so they always too? Yeah, so oh I, I was doing that for years and years. And so they always knew that I was always in the basement puttering on something. You know, whether the machine was going, my piano was going, or there was some, you know, some, some sort of art project was happening. So yeah. I think they knew it would never be completely traditional. But... I think the difference is that my parents are, at least my on, on my dad's side, he was quite from a very educated family. Yeah. So um, I think they definitely wanted, obviously, for me to, you know, get educated and, and that. But they also really were um, intent that I get assimilate properly. So being in Brandon, it meant there was very few other Chinese families. There was a few. But my parents really encouraged me to just blend. They, I mean, they had no idea that I really wouldn't completely blend. But because of your much, personality, you're, you're always going to be Karen, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not going to blend. And I mean, when you describe going to the 7-Eleven and listening to metal, you blended, girl. You totally did. Well, it's funny because... Um, they they were always in, like we didn't really have a strong religion and in, in my family like we kind of were su- we were superstitious but that's about it we had shrines we had you know the usual folklore stuff yeah but all of my friends especially in a small town were either Mennonite they were Pentecostal they were Roman Catholic they were like there's just all denomination but everyone belonged to something yeah so my parents were always encouraging me to go and join a new sect right like so I went <laughs> so I have. Um, it's part of the Mennonite Wayfarers for like many years, which is where I learned to macrame and make crafts because that was a big part of it. Wow. I uh, have done so <coughs> many like revival tents and, and that sort of stuff, but mainly because um, I like prizes. So they were... <laughs> they you are competitive in your religious practices. A, a little bit. Every, yeah. time you, every time you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart, you would get a balloon animal. So I totally wanted the balloon animal. So I would stick my hand up and it was like, yes, I'm repenting. So there's a lot of those revival things that wow. I went to. I remember going to um, Turtle Mountain Bible Camp because I really wanted to learn to horseback ride, but the, the Bible stuff was there too, right? So I yeah. would. So I, I have a really interestingly strong uh, sort of like a Christian upbringing, yeah. even though my family wasn't. So there was always that, that's part of the, there is a bit of a contradiction because on, on the one hand, I have great respect for it, even though at this point, it's it's all a modge podge of, of everything that I believe in. So. Yeah, but then you can take all of that and bring it into your work yeah, as well. You it's know, important all the experience of your life, right? The, the It's funny to me, the scariest things aren't what I've done, but um, religious horror to me, like pr- um, prophecy is horrifying. The, the book of Revelations is horrifying. So all of those sorts of end times, like I joke about it all the time that we might be in end times, but it's still part of my, I think the, the, the terrors of, especially a lot of the, um, the, the various religions, not necessarily Mennonite, they have such an emphasis on this horrible end times scenario. So yeah. I've, that's something that still freaks, freaks me out. So another story with so. with cannibals yeah <laughs> but end time cannibals but end time cannibals okay so law school yeah 
How how was that experience then of going to law school? Did you feel a sense of belonging there? Did you? Like, oh hell no! I think I was basically um, Reese Witherspoon, Legally Blonde, when I f- showed up. Only I looked like such a metalhead because I had giant ass hair. I had chains on my cowboy boots. I was I looked like I fell off a, a groupie wagon. So that was awesome. They called yeah. me Rock and Roll Karen for the first year because th- there was two Karens in my section, and there was Sporty Karen and Rock and Roll Karen, and uh, that was. Oh, that was I would so want to be friends with Rock and Roll Karen. <laughs> Sporty Karen sounds just too exhausting, frankly. She, she was really competent. I was kind of jealous. She was um, really, really um, coordinated. And she was on all the rowing teams and the rugby teams and, you know, that sort of stuff. No yeah. one would pick me for anything like that. So Yeah, So, but if, you, if you're feeling out of place then and you're doing something that, like, like how, how was the work? Were you able to It was to easier it? than yeah. fashion, to be honest, because um, you just have to show up for your tests, right? And I found an inverse proportion between... Uh, doing well in an exam and knowing the, the coursework, actually, inverse. So the more I knew about something, the worse I did on the exam. But the less I knew, the the better I did in the course. Because in law school, you're really trying to finish the the, the, the test. They're yeah. really long. So the less you know, the more the less you're writing. So you can actually get through the the, the oh, test. So wow. there was that's what I discovered. And I actually ended that's up... That's the formula. If you're in law school right now... Do nothing. Yeah. Do nothing. <laughs> Learn to cook. I learned to cook Italian. I was watching the Learning Channel for the third year, so it's like, uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a good experience. Um, I ended up uh, basically doing my articles at an insurance defense firm, so that was fun. Uh, what mainly I dealt with a lot of uh, municipal sewage breakages, and I realized I loved being in court because I saw it as my chance to practice stand up. Yeah. So yeah. It wow. Was. <laughs> okay. I'm Karen. How do we get from there? to hear like how did like how do you get from law school to well even let's go to 2014 how do you get from law school to Evangeline you know like like what was that journey from from there to filmmaker well uh, essentially um after articling I got a job at BC Film so I was actually the Wayne Sterloff who was CEO at BC Film at the time was actually one of my guest speakers at the I had an entertainment law class and I always enjoyed it and I loved films obviously and and it was something that I was interested in getting into and um, I was kind of looking around and deciding what I wanted to do with my life I thought entertainment law what does a producer do? Like, what are these sorts of things? And I actually started off as a producer in the industry. So I was uh, four years at BC Film, in-house legal counsel, helped draft the tax credit legislation. So that was, I was like, I was that financial person. So I never wanted to make films at all. So there wasn't a little voice that's like, you know what, Karen, everything you're doing is leading you to be a filmmaker. No. You know, no. No, I was going to be Sherry Lanson. You know what I mean? Like I wanted to, um, Christine Vachon, you know, I really thought that I would be an indie producer and I would be, um, yeah, that's what I was aiming for. And um, uh, somewhere along the way, I think I had, oh, I had the worst disastrous year. Was it 2006? I think every one of my projects that I had been producing and working on imploded. Like Ooh. just, you know, you have everything was at that 80% cusp of like, it's going to go. And then nothing went. Oh. And uh, in my panic, I actually um, was looking around to see what I could do. And I was actually thinking, do I go and do real estate? Like, Jesus, what what, what do I do at this point? I don't want to go back into law. Ooh. And so I ended up um, applying for and writing a, a, a short treatment outline thing for the National Screen Institute Drama Prize. 
And so that was my first thing that I actually put in for. And it was funny because I was calling all my writer friends saying, do you want to write the script for me? And I'd already had the outline. And they said, well, you've already written the outline. Can you just put it into a script? You can do this. And I yeah. was like, I don't know what I'm doing. So... Um, I, I, you know, I basically went through all the old script formatting. I used just Word, you know, indent, indent, yeah. and uh, <laughs> sent that off. And um, it was funny because I was literally uh, interviewing for Telefilm at this point. And my producer, Karen Wong, kept calling. And I was like, why is she calling? I'm on a conference call, right? Yeah. We're trying to figure out my life at this point. Yeah. And she kept calling. And then finally, I was like, OK, sorry. Can I just put this interview on hold for one second? I'm getting an emergency call in. And Karen's like, we got picked for the National Screen Institute Drama Prize. We were one of the five teams. So I was like, if this is not a universe uh, intervention, then I don't know what is. And so I mean, I, you couldn't have written that better yourself, frankly. No, it was so weird. Yeah. And so that was sort of like, I just wanted to see where it was going to go. But the whole time I was like kicking and screaming about not wanting to be a writer or, or a director. I was, um, I said, well, this will make me a better producer. So my whole, the... My whole going into the program, like we were in Winnipeg for two weeks uh, living at the Fort Gary Hotel. Yeah. And the whole time I was, I kept saying, this is just uh, me learning to produce better. And that was all I, that was my Sounds goal. like you're in denial. I didn't want it at all. Yeah. Like I really, really didn't want it. Or I did thought, you not want to want it? I don't know. I, I actually don't know because I... I thought I was a damn good producer. Yeah. And my art form was always in my sewing and my my paintings. And like I had other things, right? Like yeah. I felt like I didn't need this at, at all. And so it was interesting because even until my first feature stained, I was still kicking and screaming about not wanting to do it. And even the whole time in, in Stained, I remember we were doing on our, our it was in uh, Saskatoon and uh, we were co-producing it with... Um, Angel Entertainment at yeah. that point, and uh, the late Bob Crow, who was just like, wonderful. He was in actually my uh, one of my NSI. I got into totally television as well, mm -hmm. and so he was in that program. And that's how we met, and that's how I ended up being in Saskatoon. The whole time we were doing tech surveys, I would be standing in the back with my coffee, chatting with the crew, and they're like, uh, "Is someone going to tell us what we wanted to see here?" And I was like, <laughs> "Oh, that's me." I kept thinking I was still <laughs> acting like a producer every yeah. every step of the way, and I think in a lot of ways my issues with my first. Um, feature with Stained is the fact that I was still in producer head like yeah. it was not it wasn't it wasn't until my first um, I guess I took all of my my directing fees and uh, made doll parts because I right. wanted to see whether or not I actually liked the job like I wasn't sure after my first experience with full cast and crew and like unions and trailers and that sort of stuff I thought is this even what I want to do yeah and so uh, doll parts was I think 12 of us you know um, I think DP uh, Harvey LaRock had his Canon 7D I was um, I was PMP I was gripping I was I was gaffing I was um, it, it, yeah I, I think I bought all the props you know like it was just me getting back into do I like this yeah and because of that film I realized yes I absolutely do yeah so it wasn't until that moment though and honestly I didn't consider myself a writer or a director until I was too tired um, to fight it it was in Iceland because Evangeline was premiering at this it's a, the Monsters in Film Festival in Sweden. 
and we were flying over and it was a long it was a long circuitous flight so I, we flew from vancouver to new york new york to iceland and i thought iceland was because i i'm so bad with maps i thought iceland was just a hop step and a jump away from stockholm it is not it's another eight hours so whoa yeah no idea because maps are deceiving oh they, they are right because together. of oh my yeah, gosh they're, they're yeah. like, we're, we're making a bulb or a globe uh, <laughs> globe motions <shape>. globe motions <laughs> yeah and so i i remember landing in uh Reykjavik in the airport at six in the morning and all that was open were vodka bars and i was really thirsty and i was wandering around and looking at all the puffin stuff i wasn't a knitter at that point yeah and uh finally going through customs they asked what do you do like and normally I give this big, like I was a producer, I was a lawyer, I was a producer. And it's like, they don't really care. Yeah. Like, but I would always feel the need to justify what I was doing. And I was so tired. I said, I'm a director. And that was it. Yeah. And so that was the first time I admitted it. And it was like It's like kind of after. religious in some ways. It's like, you know, like it, welcoming it, welcoming Jesus into your heart. You're welcoming director. So. Actually, and your story is, I mean, it's vastly different from Dennis Heaton's, but it's also really, the, there's a similarity there in how he fought calling himself a writer for years and years and years. Like, well, I guess that's actually what I am because he was doing it already. Well, Dennis is one of my oldest friends in the industry. And so I... I met him when I was first starting to produce and yeah. we had the most hilarious meeting because the first things he said to me was I had not met him before. I saw this sort of red faced, well, shaven headed man barreling toward me. And I was like, he's not smiling. And the first <laughs> thing he said was, where's my fucking check, lamb? And I was just like, oh, oh, oh my. Oh, oh, my God. Who is this person? And then he saw my reaction to know that I wasn't stiffing him. And that I was clearly clueless about whatever check I was supposed to actually be giving to him. And then we were both really embarrassed. And then uh, after that, we went out for, uh, I think we went out for a coffee. And then we've been friends ever since. So it's been. That's pretty much on brand if uh, anybody else uh, has listened to that Dennis Heaton interview. Oh, God, it's so good. He has like an argument with his brain. Like in the middle of the podcast really? episode, yeah, it's I good. And I've been fascinated with his brain for years, so to see it happening uh, was was really remarkable. <laughs> um, before we go into kind of because I really want to talk with you about like the anatomy of horror um, and like what actually is scary. Before we do that, though, look, like, what are your so now that you have we're at the part of the story you've accepted being a director into your heart. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, like so what like what is what do your what does your family think about about the work that you do? Oh, I try not to show them in the same way that, you know, it's I I don't feel that I I I used to show my um I showed a couple of films to my dad before he passed, but he never liked anything. He would grade me. He'd yeah. be like, that's a C-plus effort now, isn't it? Oh, wow. So I'd be like, oh, oh you know what? <laughs> not enough cannibals, Karen. <laughs> that's actually what he kind of did. He's yeah. like, huh, well, that's not what I thought. He goes, eh, C-plus. Yeah. So I just thought at that point that <laughs> oh. we could just continue our relationship without him actually seeing the stuff that I was doing. I think he liked the, he liked the articles more than anything. I think the final thing was seeing me on, um, I, I, they had a profile of me on, on The National and having Peter Mansbridge saying, my name was enough for my dad like then he was like okay this is really cool that so, is pretty cool yeah. yeah okay so horror horror fear fear terror being scared um what like what goes into building a really terrifying story like and like what are some of the the mistakes that you see that filmmakers make when they go to to piece together a, a scary story 
I think they pay attention too much to um, what they think the market wants. Mm. The moment you start thinking about what does the audience want to see, like at, at the beginning part when you're trying to create something, it really is about you and the idea, not yeah. you and what what's going to hit for everybody or what is what's the trend thing that you're trying to do. So what you see for me that is the least scary is when it's really derivative, you know, mm. and, and it's like, oh, it's kids in a woods and they're, you know, being slaughtered by fill in whatever the, the monster actually is. Yeah. I think at that point, you lose the thread of where what what it, why it's important to you. Like, unless there's a personal element that is terrifying. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, Evangeline came from, um, originally from Doll Parts, but that was really looking at a lot of real life horror. And I, 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 I love doing true crime as well. So that's something that I go back and forth between. Yeah. And I think that human horror and human like you have to always have your touchstone in the real world. Yeah, so that's that's it. So for Evangeline, um, I mean, I I think what one of the things that I I loved like it's the one of the reasons that Evangeline has haunted me in the way that it has also is that I found it, it was the first time watching a a horror film that I felt um, empowered as well you know and also to see because there is sexual violence in it but it wasn't exploitative mm -hmm. at all because that's one of the reasons I had actually been a little nervous to see it like going into because I think it opened the women in film festivals like because I don't like seeing things that have sexual violence in it no but this one I was like oh Oh, there's there's a reason for it. One, we're not seeing seeing it's not exploitative in that way yeah. at all. But I actually left feeling really uh, terrified of David and Richard, but also really <laughs> empowered, you know, That's awesome. as yeah. well. You know, it's funny because you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't when it comes to sexual violence for a female filmmaker. If you don't show it, it's because you're squeamish and you don't want to show it. Yeah. If you do, then you're trying to kind of out boys the boys. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, but on the other hand, I think like, you know, the gratuitous shower scene, for example, that's what I look at. Like, you know, is she naked in the woods? It's like, well, I have my own boobs. I don't really need to see another pair of boobs. Like, yeah. That's, I, I feel like uh, that, that sort of slightly... Um, voyeuristic part is not like it's not part of my DNA yeah but secondly I wanted to sh make sure that how do I show um a rape scene that is about the violence and not the titillation you know yeah because like, for a lot of for a certain part of the audience and a certain part of the um the male like the male driven filmmaking when they show sexual violence it is about titillation little, it's yeah. it's and it feels very nauseating yeah you know for me for me as a viewer so I think that's one of the things that I really appreciated about uh about your film you showed the violence without showing without like even once stepping into titillation at yeah all. well you're trying not to because on the one hand I'd rather I'd rather um I, like. I would rather castrate than to than to get into like that sort of thing. And how do you do that? It's through your imagery. So it's like, you know, for a lot of guys, they think the the rape scenes should go on and on. But actually, from what I've seen in in most of the studies and and um, kind of the accounts that I've read, is that it's really quick. Yeah. So then it's like, oh God, you guys didn't even last. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. And so there's this idea that in the movies when they draw it out in that sort of way, that's not actually what happens. It's mm. it's actually a lot like it's a lot less sexy than they than than they think than those know? than those filmmakers yeah um how do you how do you like the world is a trash fire <laughs> it is now it really <laughs> is you know so like what challenges do you face trying to to scare people and to build a scary story what 
when the world is already really fucking scary? I think we're always looking for an element that really speaks to us. So um, with Evangeline, it definitely was me watching too much Nancy Grace. So I, I'm sorry. She uh, she used to have her headline show, and she was following that Natalie Holloway uh, death. I don't right. Know. That was the the uh, she was like 20, and she had gone on vacation. She she went to a room. Yeah, and um, this he, she was basically um, I think murdered by thrill killers of, yeah. of sorts and the one guy was he was a really really wealthy um right. dutch That's you know he right. was son of a dutch judge and he was you know again he was an entitled ex- privilege protected yeah absolutely and so that was really where the the, the story stemmed from so yeah. when you talk about having a real world touchstone that was one of the yeah oh, and so okay. i was watching and was following that story nightly and having like what i loved about nancy grace was just how horrible she actually was as a human but people would call in and and they'd be like, Nancy, what do you think about this? And then she would, you know, do her little tirade. Yeah. But I loved the interaction with the um, audience where they would call in and, and make suggestions as to what they thought had happened. And I remember finally seeing Natalie Holloway's mom getting a chance to interview, um, I forget his last name. It's like, it's a it's a big, long Dutch last name. It's yeah. like Vanderhoosh or something like this. And um, he just played her. Like, he was such a sociopath. And yeah. uh, he wasn't caught until that second woman in Peru, if you remember, That's in right. South, South America, and he basically obliterated her, obliterated her with a bat. And so it's just your dental records that were left, and it's because she found pictures on his um, on his laptop when he was taking a shower. So wrong place, wrong time. And you know there was that manhunt, and of course, the idea that um, this is a man who was playing international poker to get around you know he was just uh running like just that that world of the ultra rich where it didn't matter and so with richard's character when i was creating that there was a lot of this entitlement i wanted this rich kid that really the rules didn't matter to him yeah yeah. are we gonna see um and i understand no spoilers and i I don't know what's gonna happen with is is it still called the curse of willow song it is and we just uh, we just literally finished last week so like literally finished like like it's all like finished everything finished everything and uh just getting it out into uh beginnings of film festival wow that's so exciting and so and so uh is that the same kind of like my mining the zeitgeist the vancouver zeitgeist and stuff so what kind of don't tell me anything tell me about it without telling me anything like what kind of journey awaits us how scared am i gonna feel or unsettled am i gonna feel with this one it's the same touchstone that i had i had the privilege um before like i think it was the fall of 2017 right before i wrote uh the, the screenplay of spending a week in portland in the like basically with a firefighting program that was training female inmates so I was actually wow. doing, we were doing a sizzle reel for um, potentially a documentary, and it was at Coffee Creek uh, Penitentiary. And these, uh, basically it was a t- pilot program with 10 young women who were learning to be forced fires, fire, fighter fires, fire, firefighters. Sorry, that went around that. But um, <laughs> we got there in the end. Somewhere along there. <laughs> and so um, getting to spend time with these women really was the inspiration. So Willow Song, the character that's in it, she is actually on probation having been part of a gang family and this is her, this is the beginnings of her life. So wow. just hearing those stories were, they affected me a lot. So yeah. again, the I think as a filmmaker and as a writer, if you're not having real life experiences or that you're going to be writing about the same stories again and again yeah so it's really important to me you have to go out and fill your life with all sorts of do other things content yes yeah i think that i mean i think we sometimes feel guilty as 
story creators, I, I think, that you're not sitting in your office and just writing nonstop. Yeah. But it's really, really important that you have an actual life apart from that. So you should be just watching stuff that you want to watch, not because it's for work, not because it's for research. What are you gravitating toward? Why are you watching this? Like almost treating yourself like a guinea pig. Like, why are you liking that? Why did you turn it off after this, this amount of time? If you're not doing that, then you're relying on what people tell you about the market. Yeah. Well, people want to see this, do they? You know what I mean? Like it's the, I don't know. That's uh, at this point, unless you have your own barometer, you're relying on someone else's barometer. Yeah. Okay. Well, please keep me posted yes. about Willow Song because I'm, I'm, I've been intrigued about this one. Are, are any of your pre- previous collaborators or actors that you've worked with before uh, do appear in Willow Song? Yes, it's my first time writing something that's set in the Asian community. I've always been a little bit. Like, that was another thing. Part of my assimilation that my dad told me about my whole career was just don't get into the Asian ghetto. Like, he was really concerned that I didn't do a lot of kind of Asian-themed things. He thought Hmm. that it would actually be very hampering for my career. So I always wrote sort of these... Wow, that's so interesting, eh? Uh, like, like it says of, a lot yeah. about his own experience in, in, in Canada and, you know, in the quote-unquote multicultural melting pot, right? Like, Yes, his yeah. was always, if you actually draw attention to your ethnicity, they will put you in that box and that's how you will, that's the lens that they'll see you in. Yeah. So don't even do that. So I remember um, Sandra Oh was the first time that basically, because the NFB approached me to do it, and I was like, oh my God, is Mina not available? Where's Julia? You yeah. know what I mean? Like there's better, <laughs> oh, I'm the last person to deal with this subject matter as far as like- She me, means Mina Shum and Julia Kwan. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who are good friends and, you know, but in my mind, that who's, it's their voices, right? And so- They, they have definitely exploited Asian-ness within the Canadian context a lot more in their work. Exactly. Yeah. And I was always funny about like the, oh, I see myself as a white prairie dude, but sure, okay, that's, that's that. So- um, Willow is my first Asian, fully Asian character that is in a like in a storyline that's set with almost this this world of yeah. real estate and, and that. And so um, I actually cast Valerie uh, Tian, who was in my web series Mythos, which yeah. is where I first worked with her. And I wrote after working with her on that, she just has such a how do you put it like a translucent face. Like what whenever you put the camera on her, it's like something something's just happening behind those eyes yeah. and so i basically wrote one where she could be really just reactive it's compared to um yeah so a lot of times like a scary mirror yeah, yeah. i would say so so she's reflecting like she she acts in a way that sometimes when you're working with actors they act but in t- if they're not speaking they're kind of like, zoop, like yeah. you know something goes off and, yeah. they're, and they're just there val doesn't have those blinders almost she like when you put a camera on her it doesn't matter if she has anything to say she's in that moment with the other actors and yeah. I just thought oh that's beautiful what's happening so that's uh that's what I kind of wrote around and so yeah yeah I'm excited so Val and of course David who I kill regularly I try to put in uh Nelson Lisa's in it you know, like I try to use <gasps> oh. as many of my um like they're in smaller cameo roles but I just yeah. you know if I, I I do most of my casting unfortunately from my Facebook feed so don't yeah. mis- don't send me a demo <laughs> I just want to see what you're up to what you do 
you know and usually that's what I start mining that because uh, there's nothing more stressful to me than an audition well so. then I'm going to start putting even more photos of my cats Wade and Vanessa on Facebook feed so that you can cast them from that okay we got to take a break and when we come back I want to talk a bit more about um, Sandra O oh inspiration because that was and is such a delight and it's haunted me but in a very different kind of way so how's that for a cliffhanger let's take that break this ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of hollywood north history the fish flight in the 1980s the fish flight was an early morning flight from vancouver that delivered fresh fish to los angeles before the start of the business day These were the early days of Hollywood North, before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com. Sandra O. Inspiration. Um, As I described in the intro, it is a four-minute uh, it's about four minutes. Four short, minutes, yes. Short film that that uh, we get to see these live action tableaus of like really iconic scenes from films like A Clockwork Orange and Star Wars and Carrie. Uh, but these roles are inhabited by all these people rep from marginalized communities. Uh, and um, I mean, there's that great shot. We get to see uh, Princess Leia coming around. Alfina, uh, yes, Alfina look coming around a corner, which is so beautiful. And everybody talks about the the um, the impact of seeing Sandra in in doing her thing on screen for for years uh, has had on them. So, but you know, so what I found really interesting. I know we've talked about this this before for uh, for an article, but you were given the opportunity, like you were tasked with. Uh, creating a film that uh, would run at this big gala, and they're all, all like a, a wealth of people were going to be honored. They were like, and the films that that were being presented for everybody else was much a bit more of a documentary feel. And you were given permission by Sandra or herself to kind of do whatever it is that that you wanted to do and give your own spin. Am, am I correct? In well, this uh, the film that ended up being is the one that I first pitched. So ah. I did actually pitch this. And um, it was so outside of the norm that um, I, my, my producer at the NFB, Shirley Vicruzzi, basically said, oh, love that's her. not, yeah, love her too. <laughs> she said, that's not what we do. And I was yeah. like, oh, okay. Because what you do is more like the montage, like career highlights. Exactly. Because it's, it's that sort of thing, yeah. right? And so she says, okay, back to the drawing board. We need to do like a more traditional tribute. Like it's a film about Sandra. It should have Sandra. I was like, okay. She also nixed my um, all knitted Sandra characters idea. I wanted to do a puppet show with just all Aww. Sandra's characters knitted, but uh, that that also did not go well because it was going to be stop motion <laughs> and yeah, no that. So that's where my brain went on it. That's going to come down the road. <laughs> I love that. Okay, someday I'm going to do one. Yeah. So um, so we 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 put together a new pitch, sent it off to Sandra's people. She was on Killing Eve. And 
and we didn't hear back for like you know October, November, December. Oh God, we're supposed to be shooting in January, and we still hadn't heard back. And um, you know, there was also in the states the TSA was on strike, so there was all the stuff that we're dealing with as well. And so finally, Sandra uh, finally gets to look at the proposal that we sent in. It's like very harmless. It was just like it was going to be a, a day shooting interviews with her. Yeah. And uh, she didn't want to talk to me. And I was like, Wee, she doesn't want to talk to me. Yeah. She just wanted to talk to um, Shirley. And essentially she said, you know, I've had a look at Karen's work and this doesn't look like her work. And so Shirley said, oh, well, actually, and she she said, it's actually my fault. We, we went back and we... Um, you know, basically we pitched this because that's what we normally traditionally do. And Sandra said, well, is there something else that you could have done? This is kind of boring, right? And so Shirley, uh, basically, I think she panicked and pitched my first idea. And yeah. Sandra's like, well, that's awesome. Let's do that. And so I remember getting a call from Shirley from the airport. She was heading actually to a meeting uh, in Montreal for the NFB. And she had taken these notes. So she had screenshotted her notes and said, you have five hours to write a new proposal. Off you go. When I land, let's just, let's go over that. And I was like, oh my God. So I'm running to the office, you know, and just like desperate to come up with a with a one page because I never had written down, apart from in a rough email, what I thought the first idea would be. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I was inspired basically by two things. My touchstones were um, Sandra's uh, Golden Globe acceptance speech yes. about I see you was such an important like I still get reclamped I know <laughs> me <It's> too like, <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm but this was uh, and so that was such that was actually the undercurrent of what I thought and then uh, at that same time Vanity Fair had done the behind the scenes of what that cover looked like one of their Hollywood editions and so that's yeah. what I was really I was I was kind of going with that and then of course it was my favorite films but it was gonna be all horror films and then Shirley was like no it can't be all horror films Karen because I was like we could redo like the psycho scene and we could redo like all the scenes that all the films that I would like that are kind of my touchstones like, yeah Clockwork Orange is one of my favorite films I think I've seen it like 16 times I love Kubrick and so you know of course the Carrie scene I just thought ah because to me that's a that's an empowerment film like, absolutely a, yeah yeah just like screw you all right like so so Shirley said oh let's throw some other things and I always loved I, I do like as problematic as it is you know I've, I've, I've read Gone with the Wind I've seen it so many times I thought okay that's a traditional scene and then uh, Star Wars which was just a lot of fun yeah. so yeah d what was that day day I'm assuming given what I know about you know uh, NFB and tight schedules and everything you shot over a day or two days um, it took one day to set up and then we had one day to shoot yeah so, so the day when you were shooting then and you had you Know, Alfina and Mayumi and Jamie and everybody in there. Uh, what was that experience like? You know, seeing seeing them in those. I mean, see, I mean, seeing people like us. You know, in in roles where we're not used to seeing them. You know, these iconic roles. I wasn't expecting to be as emotionally moved as I was. That film, for some strange reason, broke a dam in me because yeah. I'm like not that touchy feely. But somehow, <laughs> every time I see that, I get all like, I think about the Golden Globe speech. I think about that's the the tableaus and they're actually really personal in a, in a way that I wasn't expecting to be so it, yeah. it really I, I owe such a huge debt to Sandra for not only going to bat for me but she really this idea that she made room for my voice out of all of this you know we could have done and she had that thing. bullshit detector she knew yeah. that that what she was reading wasn't you exactly at all and you know over and over again because of what she's been doing behind the scenes of 
you know, it, it really sunk in when we had, um, like, one of the things we got was a an hour-long interview with her before I actually, so I could take something and be inspired by it. Yeah. And one of the things that she works on all the time is getting people before in front of and behind the camera that are representational. She's making room for us. And I thought, if I'm not doing that with our films, then who is? Yeah. Right? Like, if, if I, like, I, I, you know, I took a lot of my dad's mentorship to heart, which is like, don't get caught in the ghetto. Yeah. Right? And so that was something that I was um, always, you know, cognizant of, for sure, until his passing. But then I thought to myself again, if I don't do it, then we're allowing ourselves to have our characters our stories being told in one specific way. And yeah. so what I what I always thought was because there's already Julia and Mina, like they are speaking for all of us. I thought there's no need for me to jump into it. But then I realized I have a very different background from theirs. You yes. know, like I you know, like not your just, experience is valid too. Your experience is part is part of the the larger experience of people who look like us and move yeah. through this move on this land, right? Well, it's it's interesting because even through doing the NFB um, documentary, because I'm not an experienced documentary filmmaker, so I, I ask really open-ended questions because I don't have an agenda. I don't know what's going to happen. I just ask questions and see what people think. Yeah. And some of the answers that came back that I used actually in the, in the little doc, you know, just struck people in a way that that's not the answer that they expected or wanted to hear in some ways you know what I mean and yeah. so I that was another thing that struck me which was then again if I'm not telling a side of this then you're sort of allowing whatever the funders or the marketplace is telling you that your story is legitimate and ought to be yeah so one of the things that really inspired me with the curse of willow song coming up is the fact that we're so used to the Chinese Asian experience as being kind of old style immigration, Chinatown, you know, all the stuff that's coming. But we're not looking at the new immigrants that are coming in with money. Yeah. And that's really important to me. Like, um, social class is really interesting. And I went to see Parasite just the other night, which is no spoilers on it. But the idea that uh, it's just as important, you can see it from Snowpiercer as well, that mm. the director is also inspired by classism. And that is something that we haven't really explored. We look at the Asian experience as an immigrant experience that is almost like everyone's working class. You come here, you start, you know, whatever job. Yes. But we're not looking at it from the moneyed immigrants that are coming in and what that impact is and what their experience is and what that in in like what that impact is on the people who have already immigrated because now yeah. their assumption is when you see a Lamborghini with an N on it like every time I read like you know sports car gets an accident I'm like oh please don't let him be Chinese you know mm. what I mean like it's that constant slight embarrassment of too much money too many toys you know what I mean and, yeah. and th that different stereotype has come in and so that's what I'm really interested in, which is that there's other there's there's another immigrant class that isn't that isn't being dealt with. Yeah. And the idea that you're very the that our Western society is very welcoming so long as you're a good immigrant and you assimilate properly in a way that, you know, that we're all kind of taught to do. But if you're too flash and you're buying up like, you know, real estate left, right and center, all of a sudden people are like go home. Who yeah. are you? You know what I mean? Like, can we do a new head tax on you? And that's yeah. sort of what it feels like. Well, yourself. yeah, exactly right now. When you, I mean, I think that is, I mean, we're seeing it. It is dr driving up. I mean, the housing crisis 
you know, is driving uh, xenophobia and anti-immigration sentiments and just like stupid racism, like st- racism is stupid, but really stupid racism that we are seeing go viral exactly. on all the social And it's so media. interesting because, again, when people are feeling displaced and God knows how like the First Nations felt when, you know, with mm. contact, it has that same feeling, which is like, how dare you displace us? You know, yeah. and it's interesting because, again, I don't have any answers to it. I just thought if if I'm not speaking of that, then I guess I don't see anyone else doing that. So and yeah. I thought I'll do that in a horror film. Yeah, because <laughs> it is a horror. <laughs> I can't wait to see it. Uh, when your film screened, though, at that big gala in Ottawa, uh what did Sandra say? Like, what did, what did you hear back from her after oh, the screening? I had such a Canadian heritage moment. It was like, so... Burn toast? No. <laughs> it, no, you know what was funny? Was that um, I, I was trying to get hold of her all evening, but there was so many people. It was like, Ottawa is an odd place. So you have tickets for this gala, and I think everyone in Ottawa shows up in their taffeta best. Yeah. So everyone is there, and there's... On your ticket, there's like special inside parties that you can go to. So then it's like, well, here's where all the plebs are. Yeah. And then there's like another, here's the mezzanine. Oh yeah. my God, there's like an interior room sort of yeah. stuff. And so I was looking for Sandra through all these tiers and I think she was doing the same thing, but we never, we never caught up. Mm. And so I was actually the next day at the airport flying back to Vancouver and um, I was talking to the head of the National Theatre School and who should show up but like there's pursuit of happiness Confiori basically comes by and you know like so this is my canadian heritage yeah. like, it's the pursuit of happiness is mo berg hi mo you know like, <laughs> oh my god so you're talking to this like you know oh my god it's pierre prudeau well it's called Mini, but yeah you know, like, it's like oh my god Confiori, i should say there he is it's like oh and call Muni a totally different kind totally of different yeah thing. sorry chief Cole o'brien Mini, chief o'brien yeah. <laughs> different thing who married an asian woman which i really liked on the show oh so keiko like, yeah yeah, I love that. So, and then, of course, Rick Mercer shows up. And he's like, he was sitting next to Sandra. And I introduced myself and said, like, I had done the film. He goes, oh, my God. Sandra loved it. She was laughing. She was crying. She's been wanting to meet you. And she just, like, she, you just really touched her. And I thought, I heard this from Rick Mercer. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Like, I was like, I can die now. Like, this is my Canadian CBC heritage moment. Yeah. All in a nutshell. Like, and. I, yeah, so I was just literally like just dancing the whole time. I was like, oh my God. And they got my selfie with Rick Mercer. And I was like, my light, my, my work here is done. Like, yeah. That's, that's it. But it's not. There's still so much. There's stuff to do. She sent me a, so much more to yeah, do. Yeah. And uh, Sandra sent me a really lovely email after that. And uh, it was just really touching. And she said, you know, if she comes to Vancouver next, then we should do a tea. But I'm still waiting for that tea. But in the meantime, you know, big posters of her up in, in that. So she's, I uh, freaking love that. Have she, you been to Neverland? No, Neverland used for tea. They used they they're uh, they were one of the first sponsors of this podcast. They're at thirty sixty six West Broadway. Uh, it is a tea house uh, where they also have a full like gluten free, dairy free, wheat free oh menu. And it is uh, was co founded and it's co owned by um, uh, theater maker Rene Iachi and uh, Academy Award nominee Terry Tatchell who co-wrote District 9 and Chappie and so it's like there is like that kind of like sci-fi horror but also like really whimsical tea element there so when Sandra comes I'd really recommend taking her there oh my god I told I how do I not know about this place it's everything everything I love yeah it is wheat free gluten free like fun free tea yeah which is what my whole my yeah whole 
Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and they're licensed. And also they have um, a Murphy bed stage, you know, so they because they all do often like after hours, like events and stuff. And they're not a sponsor uh, anymore. Like, But, you know, because like ad budgets and whatever. But I am passionate about that place because it is when I think about what tea should be like a whimsical tea house, like not like where you're like scared to make noise. Like it's boisterous and it's fun. (gasps) Yeah. Okay. so Neverland Tea, you, Sandra. Oh, make it happen. I will send me a selfie. Okay, um, I I want to I want to end with a bit more time travel. Okay, um, so if like what is a key point? What like a watershed point for you? Maybe right when you're leaving fashion school, going into law school. So we're gonna get in the phone booth and <laughs> go back K. to <laughs> at the Circle K. Yeah, <laughs> and, and we're and we're gonna go back and um, you have like a minute to give yourself some advice at that point, or 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 I mean, also you don't have to give yourself any advice at all because that's an option too. You know what? I think ignorance is bliss. Yeah. If I had known how long it was gonna take, uh, what it was going to take. I don't know that I could have done it. Everything felt like an accident or the right thing at that time. You yeah. know what I mean? It's almost like I don't make any choices unless things implode. So things have to sort of implode. And I think if I had told myself that it would implode, I would have been panicking. You know what I mean? And so yeah. I think it's best to not, I, I think it's best not to know. Yeah. You know? It's like, I mean, I don't want to go back and accidentally, you know, date my dad or something that's like I, let's not go into the DeLorean and yeah the that's just creepy. that's always right. the danger when you get into the DeLorean yeah, let's, right that's, the, yeah not okay like something bad has happened at that point yeah but I would say that <laughs> if I was meeting like a younger me I would just be like you know don't give up on the witchcraft you know what I mean like yeah. just keep doing your spells you're cool yeah but um definitely just I I think that everything God knows, I look back and there was some weird plan. But at the time, it always felt so random. And yeah. I think that's what it's supposed to be. Yeah, I love it. Oh, yeah. and before before we go, I do want to spend some time. Uh, I want to talk about a Sophia and Mateo <laughs> because I'm total fans of your two cats, your Voca cats from the yes. Vancouver Orphan Kitten Rescue Association. They are the best association because the cats, the kittens that I adopted came, so, I mean, they're weird, obviously. Yeah. They have their own personalities. Yeah. But they are so well socialized. Like, yeah. I've, I've had... It's not that there's anything wrong with the SBCA. I've had kittens from the SBCA before. But these ones are just so, so socialized. In, yeah. in You know, I think there's something about fostering in a family or yeah. in a home that basically makes them, like, they're the weird little creatures that they are. So. Yeah. And actually, I want to I, I want to encourage people, if you live in, in the Vancouver area, they're not a sponsor or anything, but this will be considered our sponsorship for them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would I would you know, happily march for them in any way, shape, or form. Absolutely. Vancouver Orphan Kitten Rescue Association. Yeah. They are a no-kill uh, foster network, you know, that you can adopt through. And um, I'm, I am I got my kittens through there. I love them so much. Wade Wilson and Vanessa, named after. Uh, they were from a, a litter of Deadpool kittens. My previous cat, he lived to be 17, was Stan Lee. Uh, so it was like a really good a really good fit. But like, I, I am not going to ever be a foster parent, though, because I would be the foster fail. I would fail over and over again. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I would have like 90 cats. I'm like, I don't know. It's, I keep trying. 
<laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it would be, but, be so hard. Wait, so tell me though, because I would love, I'd love to, to know that you were listening to this episode with, with Sophia and Matteo, uh, <laughs> saying it extra clear so that they can notice. But tell me about Sophia and Matteo. Like, what are their personalities like? You mentioned that they're so different. They're so different. They're brother and sister. She is the older and he was the runt. And so he's still the biggest scary, scaredy cat ever. She A just, literal scaredy cat. Yeah. Like he, he hides with like the slightest noise. Whereas she, he's now... 30% bigger than her. He's 12 pounds. She's nine. Aww. But she just glares at him and he's like, whoa. I mean, yeah. Right. Like he's just <laughs> terrified. And she, she's like. Because she's, she's the alpha. Yeah. She's so much so. They're basically, I think, personality wise, Wednesday and Pugsley Adams. Mm-hmm. So they are very much <laughs> that. They're usually just like, if they go quiet, it's because they're killing something quietly, you know, yeah. just in, a, in a corner. But it's. And funny. that's okay. You don't mind them doing that. Cause, no, they're supposed yeah. to do that. They're yeah. predators, right? And so, um, but Sophia has a weird textile fetish so whatever I am knitting sewing etc she will rub her like she will just roll over wet material it doesn't matter if it's yeah. like if you, you know when you finish knitting a sweater you usually block it so you you're wetting it and then you're putting it on the thing it's soaking wet she is totally making a nest out of it mm. because she loves I like, don't think that's a weird fetish I think she's part of the process yeah, so she there's an appreciation that. there you yeah. know because every sweater needs more cat ass that's yeah. what I think yeah you know? it, uh, so. life just needs so much more cat ass oh my god Karen Lamb thank you so much for being with us today where can our listeners find you on the social media so um, I think that if you were looking for me I'm opiate picks o-p-i-a-t-e-p-i-x I love that. if you are into sewing you can look up um, it's Mateo underscore Sophia underscore and uh, I sometimes <laughs> photobomb them someone actually thought I had one cat and I'm Sophia and I have a cat Mateo so that was <laughs> That was a bit alarming. They were like, they were so disappointed to find out that there was actually me and I had two cats. Um, I'm on, <laughs> so, so I'm on Twitter. I'm on like Facebook, and I'm on, uh, and and I'm on Instagram. I love following you on uh, on all the socials. Um, I, I mean, we haven't talked about sewing and stuff, but like a lot of the. Um, like it, your celebration of like 1970s, 1980s fashion has just been so exciting. I am so excited. Yeah. I think, and I think 90s is back too. So I have to dust off my um, my old combat boots and I yeah. have to find like, uh, I, I'm looking for like a slip dress to wear with a t-shirt under it. Yeah, and that's, yeah. Just, I'm, nice. not, I'm not touching my eyebrows again. Like, yeah, no. I do not need to look that surprised. I, I, lots of eyeliner, dark lip liner, oh you know, God. like plum lips. Yeah, <laughs> I was a teenager in the 90s. So that was like my very formal slash horrible fashion time Ooh, yeah it was a time it was always a time which is the yeah what, what we what doesn't kill us makes us definitely stranger oh oh <laughs> yeah, I love how strange you are I'm sorry but I think that you talking about how you skinned a Muppet for that sweater is going to be haunting me <laughs> from the days and weeks months and years ahead all right well thank you so much to our listeners please if you haven't like and subscribe leave us a review if you are so inclined they help us find more listeners and build this weird family you can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVR Screen Scene the YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Firminger. And it's produced and edited by Simon Firminger. Special thanks to Tyson Braddock and Paul Firminger, we're a family company, for technical support and to Dane Develay for the original music. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. Also cats and cat!